You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Jude 3-4 through four. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful to be here together this morning for the purpose, the sole purpose of worshiping you. Father, you are our great and glorious God. Lord, you have caused us by your wonderful grace to to share together in this common salvation that we have in the gospel, in Jesus. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that as your word is preached, that you would use your word as you promised that you would do to build up your church, to save those who are lost, to exalt Christ above all. And so, Father, we ask for your help. And Spirit, we pray that you would come and give us understanding of the text that is here before us and that we might apply it to our lives. But Lord, above all else, may you be glorified this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, there are, I think, two types of people in this world. This might be a little bit of an overgeneralization, but I think think it's a fair one. There are some people in this world who love conflict. And then there are other people in this world that avoid it at all cost. Which one do you think you might be? I think every one of us tends to lean either one of those two two directions. You know, we are either too pugnacious or we are too passive. We're either too aggressive or we're just too apathetic. We just don't want to deal with it. And both tend to be problematic, don't they? Both tend to be be, be challenges that we face. And I think both are are symptomatic of part of the challenges that we, as people who love the Lord and love his word, these are challenges that we face in our generation, in our age. Either you can become so assertive in your fight for the faith that you make a mountain out of every molehill you can find, or you and, and you can begin to, to, to throw out the word heretic more numerously than Eastern North Carolina swarm of gnats. But for you, everything just tends to be this kind of cardinal issue of the faith. Everything is worth laying down your life for. Everything is worth dividing over. Everything is worth losing your reputation for. Everything is a, a war. And I think with others of us, Others are just more peaceable. (laughs) We're more ironic, but we also might be more cowardly. You know, with theological and doctrinal debates that come up in our culture and particularly in the church, you know, you you don't want to deal with that. You'd rather be like an ostrich and just 
Shove your head in the ground and just pretend everything is okay and close your eyes and put your fingers in your ears and just wish that everybody would just get along. Perhaps that's you. Which way do you tend to naturally lean? I think we all tend to have a way we tend to go. I know mine. Perhaps you know yours. And the scriptures here, particularly in Jude, this passage we're looking at today, it it shows that wisdom is demanded of us as we seek to navigate controversies and debates in the church. And we see this tension kind of throughout the scripture, this, this tension of standing up when the time requires, but also being peaceable and not not waging war unnecessarily on things that are are not all that important. Because you'll have the Apostle Paul on the one hand, who will tell us that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. But then that same Paul will unleash a theological war against the Judaizers in the book of Galatians. How do we balance those two? You know, the Lord's servant isn't to be argumentative, but, but the scriptures, as we see here in Jude, call us, demand us to contend for the faith once and all delivered to the saints. And, and, and so this, this is the tension we, fa- we face. And, and in Jude's letter here, these opening verses, verse 3 through 4, that really introduce this letter and its main theme and main, main thrust and main purpose, Jude is kind of blasting the battle cry. He is summoning the body of Christ to arms that we might contend for the faith. And as Jude writes this letter to the church, there there is danger afoot. There is a threat to the church that is alarming to him. False teachers have begun to infiltrate the church. And Jude is saying that if if the church fails to pay attention, if the the people of God fail to recognize the threat of this message, this false gospel would make a ruin out of many in the church. These are issues, Jude says, that are worth fighting for, worth contending for. So I think Jude's warning to the first century church is just as relevant for us today, isn't it? It is one that we must heed. Just like Jude's day, there are ideas contrary to, to the biblical gospel that have snuck their way into many churches, into many denominations. And as we live in a culture where the Western world, for the most part, is leaving behind the Christian faith, there are challenges that we will face as faithful Christians who hold to the authority of God's word. But the greatest threat to the Christian church today, I believe, is not militant atheism, but it's liberal theology that preaches a false gospel of humanism and progressivism that's masquerading in Christian terminology. This is what we have to be watching out for. I think this is particularly what Jude, this type of stuff, this is what Jude has in his crosshairs here. Because though the Bible calls us to, of course, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you. That's what Peter tells us make an apologetic defense to the lost and dying world. But but that's not Jude's concern here in his letter. Jude is not concerned about those outside of the church and what they believe. But rather what Jude is concerned about is these wolves that are within the church that are deceptively preaching a false gospel. So Jude, I think, contains an incredible amount of relevance for us today. And I think today we need to hear and we need to obey Jude's call, which is God's call, to contend for the
the faith. So here's the, the sermon summary. Here's what we're going to see in Jude, that we must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. <coughs> and so the first thing we're going to look at is how we must contend for the faith. And we see this in verse three, contending for the faith. So as you look at the letter of Jude, verses three through four, Jude is introducing really, this is the summary of everything he's getting ready to talk about. This is the summary of his letter, the thesis statement, if you will, of what his letter is about, what his primary concerns are. And so this letter that we have here from Jude was not the letter that he originally set out to write. This letter was not his initial plan. He had hoped, he tells us, to write about our common salvation, the one that we share together in Jesus Christ, to perhaps be a little bit more constructive and, and encouraging the church. But that was his original desire, to write a more positive letter, maybe a more comforting and encouraging letter to the church. But, but the circumstances changed, and Jude's plans had to change in light of that. Because there seems to be some itinerant preachers that begin showing up to these churches and Jude must speak an immediate word of warning. This is a, a code red situation. Jude has to stop his plans and address this crisis of false teaching. And so he gives this letter as a word of warning, as a word of correction, as a word of admonishment and reminder. And like a good preacher, Jude not only knows his people, but he also knows his times. And he realized that these circumstances that this, these, these Jewish Palestinian believers are, are dealing with, he realizes that he needs to intervene. And these false teachers required a revision of Jude's plan. So look at what he says. He says, Jude found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. So Jude says, I need to not write about our common salvation. That would be a great topic for another time. But because things are urgent, we need to talk about what it means to contend for the faith. That's what I want to appeal you to do, urge you to do. So what does the word contend mean? It's a word we really don't use all that often. What does it communicate? Well, the, the word contend communicates this idea of struggling, fighting for a noble cause. And of course, the noble cause that Jude has in mind is, is the most worthy cause of, that we could ever have. This is the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jude has in mind. And so contending is really important because it's not just fighting just to fight. It's not just fighting to throw punches in the air for the sheer exhilaration of feeling your arms swing in the wind and to feel it impact against someone's jaw. That's, that's not what Jude has in mind here. He's not just call, calling for a quarrelsomeness, a combativeness. That's not what Jude is urging the people to do. No, contending is fighting for a cause, for a purpose that's worth risking your life for, that's worth speaking up about. And that purpose that Jude has in mind is the noble cause of the gospel. And he's saying this, this, these, these, the gospel itself, this is worth contending for. This is worth speaking up about. This is worth rebuking others for because this is worth our struggle and fight. The gospel is worth contending for. And so Jude presents this most urgent and noble cause this faith that he says that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You know, if you're the kind of person 
you might be a little bit more like me and tend to, to naturally want of, to avoid controversies and to not cause anyone to dislike you. If you tend to want to people please, then, then you really have to hear Jude's call here. You really have to listen carefully because there are going to be times in your Christian life where you must speak, where you must correct, where you must rebuke where you must contend and you do so and you, you contend not because your heart overflows with hate, but because your heart overflows with love for God and love for his word and these precious truths of the gospel. And when the faith is under attack, particularly by those within the church, this is when the true believers in Jesus Christ must speak up. They must contend. They must repudiate the corrosive teaching of the false teachers. And so for what then are we to contend as believers? And again, we see Jude tells us this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So I think this phrase, this faith once for all delivered to the saints, communicates three aspects of what we are contending for. Three aspects to this faith that we have to understand if we hope to contend it. And the first is the permanence of faith. The second is the delivering of the faith. And the third is the possessor's of the faith. So we'll briefly talk about each one of those. Let's talk about the, the permanence of the faith, the permanence of the faith. Jude says this faith is once for all, once for all. The gospel is not changing. It is permanent. It is objective. It is true. It is consistent. It does not morph with the times or with the age. It is not adaptable to whatever cultural climate. The gospel is timeless. Jude says it's delivered once and for all. So the permanence of the gospel flies into the face of the cultural climate in which we live, doesn't it? Because our generation in this postmodern age has rejected the very concept of objective truth. Instead, everything is subjective. And what is true is determined by the, the individual. So what's true for you might be true for you. And what's true for me, what's true for me. Have you ever heard anybody use the idea of her truth or his truth or my truth? That, that's, that's rooted in the subjective understanding of truth in which we live. And not only that, but the ideology of progressivism, that this idea that we modern people in the 24th century, we're, we're too mature for these objective ideas of truth and ancient superstitions, even the whole idea of God. We've matured past, and it's this ideology that we're far too civilized for the sort of shenanigans that we're doing here in this room, far too evolved, far too intelligent. But yet the testimony of God's word rebukes our culture and those who would seek to appropriate our culture and bring it into the church. The God, God's word just rebukes such foolishness that the postmodern and progressive philosophy that dominates our age is foolishness. But that hasn't stopped attempts from, from liberal theologians in the last couple of centuries from trying to quote-unquote update the Christian faith for the times. And though they might have been well-intentioned, they sought to try to help the Christian faith, to save the Christian faith. In effect, they destroyed the Christian faith. They rejected the authority of the Bible. 
They made experience the test for what is true. They rejected the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And they said, well, Jesus isn't about paying for your sin. No, he's just an example of love that woos us to love God in return. They, they reject the idea of Jesus and his kingdom. And they change the definition of the kingdom of God and make the gospel not about Jesus, but about social change and reform and revolution. You know, they reject the exclusivity of the gospel. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth of the life, they say, no, not so much. Now, Jesus isn't the only way to God. There are more than one way to God. All this done, not by those outside of the faith, but those who claim to be within, those who say they are Christian. But whatever you call this, this liberal theology, it is not worthy of the label Christian. It has been changed has been modified, it has been perverted beyond all resemblance to any biblical definition of the Christian faith. J. Gresham Machen, who was a, a Princeton professor at the turn of the 20th century, he was absolutely right in his book called Christianity and Liberalism that he wrote during a very tumultuous time of the faith. And what he said, he said, Christianity and liberalism, they're, they're not two rival forms of Christianity but they are two entirely different religions. And he's absolutely right. One holds to the unchanging permanence of the faith once for all delivered, and the other makes a religion out of humanism and disguises it in Christian lingo. We have to be careful. The faith that we hold to, the faith defined in the scriptures, the faith that Jude is telling us to contend for, this is a faith delivered once for all. It is permanent. It doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and praise the Lord for that. So this is a permanence to this faith in which we contend. But, but the second thing Jude mentions here is the delivering of the faith. The delivering of the faith. Not only does Jude emphasize its permanence, but he also reminds us that no one invented this faith. This faith has been delivered to us gifted to us, sent to us by God, and passed on to us by the prophets and the apostles in their words recorded in the scriptures, the very breathed out word of God. And it, Jude's, Jude's point is pretty clear. It's, it's foolish to change what has been given to us by God himself, what God has revealed. You know, as we think about the Christian faith, we have to remind ourselves human ingenuity did not invent the doctrines that we hold. All the religions invented by humanity seem to all be kind of similar, don't they? They put man at the center of the whole enterprise. They often promote some sort of worship of the world or the flesh. And they're systems that are filled with moralism and works and good deeds in order to try to receive salvation or to achieve nirvana or to be one with creation. So neo-paganism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism... New Age mysticism, they, they differ in nuance, but at the core, they show the seams of man-made fabrication. That's because they are. But the Christian gospel just sounds so strange, even foolish to mankind. You know, a God of love who redeems us and saves us through the death of himself, through his son, what sort of nonsense is this? The world thinks. You see, these truths that we hold to that have been handed down, that we have received, this is not the wisdom of man because it is foolishness to us. 
This is what Paul, Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You see, we did not come up with this gospel. We have received this faith by God's gracious speaking to us. He has revealed himself to us. He has spoken to us ultimately through his incarnate son, the word made flesh. And this gospel has been given to us by God and it has been passed down throughout the generations of church history. And as Jude is writing this to the, the, these Palestinian believers, he writes to them at the tail end of the apostolic age. A lot of the apostles are starting to die. Their time is coming to an end. And he reminds the church, he reminds them, they, they have been delivered this faith. They didn't invent this. They didn't come up with this. This has been given to them by God through the witness of the apostles. And they must defend it. And they must make sure that they pass down the good deposit faithfully to the next generation of Christians until the Lord tarries. And church, the good news is it has been passed down faithfully by God's gracious work of preserving these sound truths. And this has been passed down faithfully, and now it has been entrusted to our generation here in 2019. We didn't write the Apostles' Creed or the truths that have come within. We didn't invent this gospel as Redemption Church, thinking, oh, well, maybe we can you know, change things up in our church plan and kind of come up with new beliefs. No, that's, that's not what we're about. We, we, we believe in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is a faith that we have received ultimately from God, but passed down through the faithful testimony and contending of Christians from generations past. And through the faithfulness of those who have come before, they have passed it on to us. And by God's grace, may we be found faithful in making sure this faith once for all delivered is passed on to the next generation. And that leads to the third thing here, the, the possessors of the faith, the possessors of faith. Who are they? In Jude's definition here, who are they? This faith that has been once for all delivered, who does he say? To the saints. Well, who are the saints? They're a football team. That's not what he has in mind here, right? Who are the saints? Is he talking about Mother Teresa? No. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us. We are the saints. We are the ones who have been made holy by our faith in Jesus Christ. And so the word saint ought not to be applied to just certain calibers of individuals. No, God makes his church, every believer in Jesus Christ, a saint by his grace. And it is to the church that God has entrusted this faith to be once for all delivered from generation to generation. So every church, every local gathering of the saints, including us, should have a clear and defined confession of faith. That's essential. If we're going to be faithful to Jude's word here. We have to know what we're contending. What, what is this faith that has been delivered to us? You see, the most important aspect of a church is not its preacher. It's not the program's not the music, it's the confession, the confession of faith. 
And then it's sad that when so many Christians are looking for a church, that's the last thing they look at, if at all. Ought to be the first. What is this faith this church believes? What does this church believe in? And are they committed in this shared conviction to contend for this faith once for all delivered to the saints? You see, the elders and the leaders of the church, like myself, we do serve an essential role in contending for this faith and being those on the front lines of dealing with false doctrine in the church. But, but notice what Jude does here. He's not writing to the church's elders, is he? He's writing to the saints. Every Christian called by God and made a saint by the mercy of Jesus Christ. You see, it is the responsibility of every saint in the church to contend for this faith, to hold to a shared conviction of this shared confession of faith. And this is why we at Redemption Church, every membership weekend, of course, we've got one coming up this weekend. If you're interested in learning more about being a covenant member, of course, we'd love to have you this next weekend. But if you're going to be there, you'll find out soon enough that we spend a couple of hours teaching through our confession of faith because as the members of the church, our unity is dependent upon a shared possession of this common salvation that Jude talks about. And once we know what we share together in the Lord, this common faith, then we as the people of God covenanted together at Redemption Church, then we together can contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so church, here's a word of reminder for all of us, particularly if you're a covenant member here, even if you're not, this is something you need to be aware of. You can't contend for something that you do not know. You can't contend or something that you do not know. We must all commit ourselves to the serious study of Scripture, to grow in sound doctrine, and to submit to the public teaching of the Word in the church. Because if we want to contend for this faith, if we want to be obedient to Jude's battle cry here, then we must be found faithful in our faithless generation. And we must grow in our knowledge and comprehension of this faith that has been once for all delivered. So we have to contend. But there's a second aspect to our contending here that Jude draws out. And we see that drawn out in verse four. We must watch for danger. We must watch for danger. So let me ask you a, a question. Would you recognize a false gospel if you heard it? Has your spiritual discernment been sharpened by the word and by the spirit to detect distortions of the Christian faith? If not, you better be thinking about how you can sharpen that discernment with the Lord's help. You know, it really would be a wonderful world, wouldn't it? When you could go into a bookstore like Barnes and Noble, there's not much of them left anymore, but, but say you could go into a bookstore and find a, a good Christian bestseller on the list and just pick it up and read it without thinking twice, knowing that it's safe, or, or to turn on the, the TV preacher, whatever guys are on nowadays, I don't have cable anymore, so I don't even know what TV preachers are on TV, but let's say you did and you just turned them on, you're flipping through it, wouldn't it be great to know that every preacher you hear on TV, you're going to actually hear the true gospel? Wouldn't that be wonderful? 
or, or to go and read a, a blog online knowing that the, the author is theologically sound. But, but friends, that, that world does not exist. It does not exist, particularly now a days in the gigantic marketplace of ideas. So the need for biblical discernment has never been greater. And Jude's warning reminds us that this isn't just a challenge in 2019. No, this, is, this has always been a need for faithful Christians to have spiritual discernment, to be able to determine truth from error. From the beginning, Christians have needed spiritual discernment, and we certainly need it in our own days. And Jude identifies these false teachers here. Look at what he says in verse 4. He calls them certain people. He keeps their identity a bit vague, but, but we can learn quite a bit about who these people are and what they're like from Jude's description. We see first that these false teachers have crept into the church, haven't they? They've crept. They were so sneaky that nobody noticed them. They were fooling people. And false teachers are cunning. We have to remind ourselves of this. They know the right things to say to earn the trust of your ear. They are smooth talkers. They are easily just get other people to listen to them with, with eagerness. And what makes false teachers in the church so dangerous is that they will often use all of the right terminology. They may even sound orthodox and market themselves as such. But in reality, when you listen carefully with biblical discernment, you can find out that they are actually distorting the gospel and perverting the faith. And those who lack biblical wisdom can quickly become duped by these certain people that Jude has in mind. And Jude also tells that, this, that these false teachers that he has in mind here were, were designated for condemnation long ago. What does he mean by that? Well, he's not referring here to some decree of God to contemn these people from eternity past. Rather, what he has in mind is that he is referring to the prophetic word of God that makes it clear that the lifestyle of these opponents will bring God's wrath upon them. And here, Jude is foreshadowing the rest of his letter. Because as we'll find out in the coming weeks, Jude is going to marshal example after example text after text, demonstrating why these false teachers are condemned by the word. So what seems to be the big error these certain people are making that condemns them? Well, if these false teachers are so sneaky, how are, how are you, how are, how are we going to recognize them? Well, Jude expounds here around similar words to Jesus himself. Remember Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he talks a little bit about false teachers. And he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. It will be in the lives of these false teachers that you can typically most easily spot the spiritual phony. So what sort of lifestyle does the teaching produce? That's a question you ought to ask. Is it a life of holiness and righteousness? Or is it a life of carnality, of worldliness, of greed, of possession. You see, Jude tells us that these opponents that he has in mind here, these are ungodly people, he says, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
That's who these people are. And based on Jude's description, these certain people seem to be doing the complete opposite of what Paul had said, as we read earlier from Pastor Jimmy from Romans, right? These certain people seem to be preaching grace so that sin may abound. That seems to be their goal. These teachers, Jude identifies, they're perverters of grace, meaning that they seem to be teaching and preaching God's grace alone. But then they go on and encourage by their lives and their teaching a life of sensuality. And this licentiousness promoted by these false teachers seemed to be some sort of sexual immorality that they were promoting. So look at verse 7 in Jude. You can look at it there. Now, Jude will bring up Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, we'll look at this in the weeks to come. But he said, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. So whatever false gospel that these, these teachers seem to be promoting was not so much terribly wrong, but terribly incomplete. And that's another key marker of false teaching. It's not so much what is said, but what is missing that you will find false teaching in the church because they preached grace. These false teachers, Jews, they're, they're preaching grace, but it's grace without repentance. It's salvation without holiness. It's, it's putting on the new man without killing the old. That's their error. And these false teachers were most likely very familiar with the Apostle Paul, with his teaching. You know, they loved the doctrine of justification by faith. They loved the emphasis that Paul made on, on grace alone. And so they could sneak into churches and they could talk about those topics. But I were saved by faith. I were saved by grace. And the congregation would go, yes and amen. Preach on, brother. But then evermore, this deadly error that they made was this. They were arguing that if God saves us by grace, then we're, we're free to in, indulge the flesh, to engage in whatever sexual practice that you desire, to enjoy any form of sensuality. You're free in the Lord. You've been saved by grace. Enjoy. And these false teachers did not hear the true gospel taught by Paul. It's a deficient gospel. It's a half gospel. They did not hear Paul's words in Romans 6 when he, when he said, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer, Paul says, is by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? For Paul, this teaching is completely oxymoronic from the doctrine of gospel of justification by faith. So, so, so church, we have to watch out for any teaching that uses the gospel as justification for sinful living. You have to watch out for that. Any teacher who would use the gospel to encourage sin, that's a false teacher. As those who must contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, we have to pay attention to these deceptive practices of the false teachers. They're sneaky. They're sneaky. They infiltrate often without people realizing that they're false teachers to begin with. And false teachers, this is, their, this is their bread and butter. They work through deception and subversion. And historically, as you look at the history of the Christian church, there tends to be a pattern of how false teachers can lead whole churches astray, and not just whole churches, but whole denominations astray. And we have to be aware of how false teachers do this because it doesn't just happen overnight. 
It's an urgent thing. This is why Jude's so aggressive in dealing with these false teachers immediately. Because if they get a foothold in the hearts of the people, the whole church is going to be led astray at some point. And so, so Jude is insisting that we have to contend now. So, so historically, how does this sort of doctrinal error, this drift to this non-Christianity, how does that actually happen in the church? Well, let me draw out for you a little bit how this has happened in our country and how it could happen even here at Redemption Church. And we have to be careful. So how does it happen? First, what happens is that the authority and inerrancy of Scripture is challenged. The authority and inerrancy of Scripture is challenged. False teachers will begin by spewing the first satanic question. Did God really say? Did God really say? And it won't be aggressive or militant. It'll just be this sort of careful inquisitiveness, beginning to maybe just question some some things that the church has historically believed. Did God really say? It'll just start to be challenged a bit. And then secondly, the authority and inerrancy of Scripture is denied, is denied by these false teachers. That those who first voice challenges to the reliability of God's Word will begin to reject the reliability of God's Word. And so then they'll begin to attribute error to the Bible. They'll reject its historicity. They'll say things like, well, we really can't understand who the historical Jesus is. The Bible's not trustworthy. It's not reliable. And so instead of the Bible begins serving as the chief authority for the faith, once for all delivered through the apostolic witness, instead what happens is that the, the scriptures are denied and then largely replaced by the judgment of personal experience. What do I think to be right? What seems to make the most sense to me? And so I become the determiner of what is truth and wrong at that point, not God's word. And so now that I've rejected the authority of God's word, now I can kind of pick and choose what in God's word I like and what I don't like and just keep the parts I like and discard the ones I don't. And then that leads to thirdly, that this judgment of personal experience begins to fashion a God of one's own choosing. That's what begins to happen next. Once you reject the authority of the Bible before long, you're just, you're just assembling and cobbling together, cherry picking Bible verses to make your own God. And you will hear comments from people, even in the church. Well, the God I worship would never do that. He would never condemn someone. If you hear that, there's a false teacher there that has cobbled together their own God. Fourth, a personal fabrication of God. So as people make their own God, this personal fabrication of God is used to justify sinful practices usually resembling the sinful practices that are common in the world, the lifestyle of the world. So they'll take their personal God that they've made for themselves, and before long you begin to find that their God actually talks and speaks a lot like the rest of the world. (laughs) It's funny the way that works, the way sin is so deceitful and blinding. False teaching tends to always, eventually, over time, be revealed and exposed by godliness. You will recognize them by their fruits. And that's how that happens. First, question God's word. It's challenged a bit. Second, God's word is denied. Thirdly, personal experience begins to fashion your own God from the the remnants of the Christian tradition. And then fourthly, you use your own personal God that you've made for yourself to justify your lifestyle or the lifestyle of others and sin. 
That's the way that pattern has worked historically. And that process doesn't always happen fast. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it happens over a generation. But you can track this pattern historically, not only in individual lives of people, but in whole denominations. Whole denominations of churches can be led astray little by little, inch by inch, as they begin to reject and deny the authority of God's word and this faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. And it's funny, isn't it, how it all goes back to the authority of God's word. This is one of the primary ways that we as Christians must contend for the faith. We must defend the authority and inerrancy of the scriptures. And this is a, 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 a battle that every generation has to contend for. For a lot of us, this, generation, this, this battle was fought most recently in our own convention of churches, back in the 1970s and 1980s in the Southern Baptist Convention, before a lot of us were born. But this is a battle that comes up every generation. Will we hold firm to God's word as true, as reliable, as sufficient, as authoritative, as the faith that has been handed down from God to us, passed on through the generations of Christians. Because when the Bible is slowly chipped away at, or when the Bible is slowly ignored and just kind of cast to the side, or when the Bible is just neglected by, by Christians or by, by whole churches, it's usually nine times out of 10, without the intervention of the Spirit and Christians who contend faithfully, it is usually the start of a tragic decline into major theological error and sinful living. So if you go back to the question, the question Jude brings up, who is your master and Lord? Who is your master and Lord? Is it your own wisdom? Is it the desires of your flesh? Is it your own emotions or experiences? Or is it Jesus Christ and his authoritative word recorded in the Bible? How you answer that question is going to determine which way you go. That's why what Jude says about these certain persons, this is their ultimate problem. Look at what he says. He says, verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and check this out, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, these false teachers who embrace sexual immorality in the name of God's grace, Jude says they deny Jesus as Lord and as master. They are living in such a way that are, that's in contradiction to the words of Jesus. You see, in its simplest form, if you had to boil it down to just its simplest form, what does it mean to contend for the faith? If you had to boil it down to just one little question, the question is, who is your master? Who is your master? And if it isn't Jesus, and if it isn't his breathed out word inspired by the Holy Spirit recorded in the Bible, then you will, you will end up as a false teacher and you will end up embracing the lifestyles of these false teachers. You see, we live in an era of spiritual confusion in the church. Just like in Jude's day, we're not all that different. In fact, it seems, doesn't it? Like every other day, every week or so, there's a, a new big-time Christian leader that announces his or her support 
for the gender and sexual revolution that has swept our generation. Many have tried to use the Christian faith and distort it in order to embrace ungodliness. Church, we have to be very careful. We have to watch out for those who deny Christ's lordship and who reject his word. It is a damnable error, Jude says. This isn't light stuff. Many have been swept away to destruction by embracing false gospels that are preached by many who call themselves Christians and who sell bestsellers. May we contend, church, for this faith once for all delivered to the saints. And may we cling to the gospel of grace that produces holiness in our lives. May we hold firm to the authority of God's word. And may we, as God's people, contend for the faith in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Let's pray together. Father, we come with you with heavy hearts because, Lord, we know that Jude's warning, his call to us is not not light, but it is heavy. Lord, we live in a day and age in which the faith, the faith that has been passed down to us, the faith that has been revealed by you, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, it is seemingly constantly under attack. And, Lord, we're not worried about those outside of the church attacking the faith. Lord, we're to expect that. But Lord, we are concerned about the many churches, the many teachers, the many denominations that are being swept away by the spirit of this age that are rejecting Jesus as master and Lord and who are fashioning a God of their own making, a God who cannot save them. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the seriousness of this faith that we hold. And Lord, this faith is wonderful. It is precious. Lord, the wonderful good news that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, that he has died in our place, that he took on the punishment of our sins so that those who trust and repent of sin and call out in faith to Jesus Christ, Lord, that we might not be condemned, but that we might be saved. And Lord, that you call us out of sin into a life of holiness so that we might live in a way that pleases you, that honors you, that glorifies you, a life of worship and devotion to Jesus. Lord, this is this faith that we hold, the faith taught in your word, the gospel preached faithfully throughout the generations. Lord, we pray that you would help us to contend for this faith, to believe in it, to trust in it. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful in our generation. And Father, I pray, Lord, that those who are here this morning who who might not know the true gospel, Lord, that they would hear the good news of Christ this morning. Lord, how you save sinners like us. And Lord, how you save them and justify them and call them into holiness for your glory and for their good. Father, I pray, Lord, if there are any this morning who don't know Jesus Christ or who are confused about what the gospel really is, Father, I pray that that they would come find me, find another elder, find another member of this church, and Lord, that we might be able to sit down with them and show them from your word what the gospel is about. Not this gospel we've invented or that we've come up with, but this faith that has been once for all delivered to us. And Father, we thank you for your preservation throughout the generations of this wonderful gospel that saves sinners like us. 
Jesus, as we respond to you and to your word this morning, Lord, may we sing and worship and confess and look to you with fresh eyes. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.